iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Here we go. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing all right? Yeah? Doing good? All right. Nice. I like the energy. It's going to be fun. We got a really awesome event lined up for you right here, so we're going to jump right into it. Like I said, Tribeca time. It's been the best week ever in the history of weeks. This is one of the best ones. And uh, my best friend in the world is about to come up here and talk to you. He's been coming up in front of every event. He's from a great group of people called the IndieWire Group there. He's going to talk about that. We partner with them every year. This year, no different. And they help make all these things happen here uh, for Tribeca. So please make them feel welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, one last time, Basil from IndieWire. Thanks so much. <clears throat> So I want to thank uh, the Apple Store Soho and Tribeca for partnering with us to uh, do these, these, uh, these panels uh, this whole week and, and part of last week as well. Um, for those of you that don't know, IndieWire, IndieWire.com is your online source for independent film news. Um, we cover film festivals, uh, premieres, openings, uh, lots of other things. Uh, for, we publish multiple times a day, um, publish every day. Um, check us out, IndieWire.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Anthony DeCurtis from Rolling Stone, and tonight's guest, director Stephen Mitchell. Thank you all for coming out, Stephen. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having us. Well, you know, I mean, that was a, you know, those snippets are, uh, you know, part of a very powerful story that you told, and you know, one of the interesting elements of, of the film is that it's, you know, based at this family re reunion, uh, you know, it's deep into the band's family, and at the same time, you know, you do get a lot of the stuff, I think, that things, uh, you know, that people expect from, you know, rock documentaries. But, you know, it seems to go a lot deeper than what people's notion about, you know, what a rock documentary might be. And I wonder if you can talk about that, uh, you know, the kind of film that you set out to make you know, what the band thought about what, uh, you know, you all were trying to do and, you know, where you ended up and how you felt about all. Well, I think um, probably a big challenge when you work with a band like Kings of Leon is they make not great music, they make world-class music. So everything they try to do creatively, they're going to raise the bar, you know, to a pretty... Uh, high standard and so this was the first film that I made but I don't think that mattered to them very much you know they still wanted it to be great and uh, expected that of us and so I think very early in the process they realized a couple years ago we did a series with uh, Fear Creative here in New York who pr uh, produced the film and Casey my partner not here tonight he's not feeling well but we did a series uh, that we released online and I think the band really at that point in time understood that, hey, uh, people kind of like us watching, see what we do every day and how the kind of people we are. And I think that they realized that the fans were really connecting to that experience of getting to know them as people just like all of us are. We're human and make mistakes. And uh, even though they're in a big band, they're not perfect people either and a lot of uh, challenges and struggles in their life. So they I think they realized that people wanted to hear their story. And you know, I knew I wanted to tell their story about 10 years ago when I met them, but it took a long time, obviously, to bring this to fruition. And I think maybe a motivating factor for the band, too, was a lot of people know their story around the world, but I don't know how accurate it's been told. Well, the thing about it, I mean, it, it seems to me like the difference between knowing the story and maybe even reading about it, you know, hearing about it, 
it's very different from seeing it. And, you know, I, obviously here in New York, it's a very different place from, uh, you know, Talahina and that sense also of a, this kind of deeply religious, uh, you know, evangelical Christian, you know, really out on the fringes of what that whole practice is. Uh, you know, even a lot of people that you, you know, might see on the news uh, or, you know, in, in kind of stories are much, much more conventional people than, uh, you know, the kind of views that are held in the film. And I, I, I think that part of bringing that forward and how it informs who the band members are and uh, how they think about themselves and how they think about their music is, is one of the most kind of gripping things about the movie. And I wonder you know, if you could talk about that element and if, and if the band had any, um, I don't know, qualms, questions, issues. Reservations uh, maybe yeah, would be a about, good word. Yeah, yeah. About showing sure. that much. I, I mean... Uh, you know, we've had a lot of a lot of people asking me that same question. You know, were we trying to convey a particular message, or I don't know that we were really trying to make such a parallel to religion and make a statement about it. But it is what where they grew up and the their background, and it's ingrained in them. That's all they knew from being little boys up until the point that their parents did get divorced, and it's a you know, I think when you, it's actually, you know, Pentecostalism is pretty strict. You, uh, the women can't cut their hair, uh, they can't wear makeup, uh, no jewelry. Uh, the boys oftentimes when they were little, if they would play in basketball tournaments, they'd have to wear uh, long sleeve shirts and pants. So if you can only imagine literally Nacho, Nathan, Caleb playing in basketball tournaments and long sleeve shirts and pants, that's what they used to do. So I, I you know, and then your father's a minister, um, you perform in church with your parents. Your mom's on the piano all the time. Your dad can play an instrument. Every uncle's talented musically. You're, you know, they were performing in church. Caleb could sing, obviously, since he was a little boy, he could sing well. So I don't really know that you can totally leave that behind you, you know, especially when all the way up until, you know, Caleb obviously is our lead character to some degree in the film. He did think he was going to be a minister, and that's because that's all he knew, and that's not something he... He wanted to be like his father, you know? And so uh, when that fell apart on him, that shook his world upside down. So I think maybe if we wanted to show anything, it was just the accuracy of what they came from. I think that one of the... Uh, I think that was one of the sort of tensions, in, interestingly, in the film, because there is a tremendous amount of pride in what the, they've been able to accomplish and uh, obviously how big they've gotten and how successful they've become... Uh, on the other hand, you know, it's a very different kind of success from, uh, you know, what the Pentecostal vision of success would be. And, you know, obviously, you know, Caleb and, and you know, the band, I think, as a whole kind of struggles with that, as do the people around them. And I wonder, uh, you know, if you could talk a little bit about sort of negotiating those, uh, you know, those waters with them. Yeah, and I do too, probably, to some degree. So I don't have the same background that they do, but I can relate in many ways, I guess you could say. And I think when I got to know Nathan and Caleb 10 years ago, it was maybe some of the similarities of why we clicked as friends. And I could not necessarily understand about where they came from, but have an understanding of how to go learn more about it. And um, But I think they do struggle with it a little bit. I, 
I think when your world, when maybe the first half of your life was so extreme in one direction and all of a sudden the second half of your life is in an extreme, you know, I don't know how uh, a person handles that very well, you know. Uh, Angelo, who you meet in the film, the, the longtime producer, he talks, and I don't ever get the quote exactly right, and he, he says a lot cooler than I do, so I'm probably going to screw his own quote up here a little bit. But it's something to the degree that when he first met them, he got this sense that they had, like, God on one shoulder, uh, you know, uh, or the devil on one shoulder, rock and roll on the other, and, like, God swirling all around in the middle of it. It was just, it's a weird, tornadic, they're, they're, every day in their world is wild. It's... Well, it's interesting. I mean, that whole uh, set of issues is something that, you know, runs through, you know, the very origins of rock and roll. You know, I mean, somebody like Little Richard or, or Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, would routinely, they'd, they'd go back and forth between giving up rock and roll and then, and then going back out again and really genuinely feeling... Or El Elvis, uh, you know, had his gospel run there, even some of those guys. And exactly. I know, yeah. Feeling that you're going to lose your soul doing this. And... Um, I wonder, uh, you know, what your sense was about, you know, just kind of, again, you know, just kind of getting that deeply into that with the band, you know, like, because there, you get a sense of, uh, you know, they're clearly enjoying what's happening with them, but, you know, you, you have that feeling, too, that, that there's an element of, of questioning of it on their parts. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate assessment um and I, but i think in some ways i've seen them go through that cycle you're talking about where you know when i first met them they were fairly conservative and then their wild curve went off the stratosphere probably and then they seem to come back and settle a little bit and they're getting married and uh having families and so life is changing a little bit but i also think maybe caleb particularly and maybe maybe the movie helped him along in that journey but i think he's starting to realize that this is what he's gonna obviously it's what he's doing and it's what he's meant to do and he's okay with that you know and he's doing a good job talk about um you know i'm trying to strike a balance uh you know between this deeply personal stuff and also uh, trying to, you know, say something about the band's music and, uh, you know, show a little bit about how they work and, and what their days are like and what those experiences are like. You know, what, we, you know, what was some of the, uh, you know, some of the, I guess the maybe aesthetic or, or thematic decisions that you, uh, that you had to make? Yeah, that's, those were all good points, decisions we had to make. And uh, Casey, again, who's not here tonight, was kind of our, like, guard dog on this fact but you know we didn't want to make a behind the music and that's that doesn't mean behind the music's not a fantastic show you know we didn't want to make a standard documentary or we didn't want to make a standard anything i mean nothing kings leon ever does is standard or conventional so we knew we wanted to shake it up a little bit maybe have a hybrid or, or a, a genre buster you know, um, so we decided not to lower thirds, you know, this is Uncle Cleo or this is the year 1985. And part of that was due to, you know, we wanted to jump around. We wanted to have slow moments where you got to be at the park and really enjoy that. But then fast, hectic moments in their lives, obviously. And we wanted to take everybody on this coming of age journey that we had stumbled upon in the footage with Caleb and the interviews and so forth. And so, yes, I think stylistically, we wanted to make sure we had elements of all the necessary factors because you still are serving a fan base and you want to make sure your fans are getting what they want, but maybe you can teach them uh, something while you're at it too. 
Well, I think also, you know, it, it's the kind of movie that it, it, it seems to me that where you can want to reach beyond the fan base. You know, like, uh, I mean, I think anybody who's interested in music or it is a coming of age story and it is, I mean, anybody who's coming out of a background that, that they're struggling with, you know, can get something from it, interestingly. Um, what about, you know, there was a lot revealed, you know, about the family, uh, particularly about their father, uh, about their mother as well. And what were those issues like as far as the band themselves dealing with that? And, and also, I'm sure, I don't know if it was a question of approval, but, the, you know, the family obviously, uh, I know you, ha you probably had to show them the movie and have discussions with them about it. Can you describe a little bit about what, what that was like? Yeah, I, I mean, that wasn't easy, obviously. And I, like I said, I've known them for 10 years, and so I think there was a lot of friend trust factor in there. And they've gotten to know Casey pretty well over the last few years, too. So I think they knew our intentions were proper at all times. And I, I jokingly call myself Kings of Leon fan number one, you know. So I, I didn't want to put anything out there that made them look bad or didn't serve the greater purpose. And I'm proud of my friendship with those guys. And I think they're an awesome band, you know. And they do have an amazing story. But there's touchy elements in there. And so... Um, I think, yeah, that interview with their father, I was particularly nervous about. I like him. I get along with him well. You know, I, I, uh, he's been good to me, and I didn't want to embarrass him, but I had a job to do, and I told him I wanted to do the interview, and he wanted to do it. And I think is, in those cases, we just try to treat everyone respectfully, respectfully and don't try to abuse the privilege, basically. Fairly, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, pretty clearly, you know, a lot of the energy that I guess the boys learned, you know, in, in that environment is something that translated into their music. And wonder if, you know, if that was something that, you know, was you all discussed. And Well, that, you know, you, that's really a good way to state it, too, because I, I think they always have, they've learned how to be performers as children growing up in the church. And so I think when they decided to have a band, get out there in the world, they were reserved at first, and I think a lot of you remember mustaches and all the other, I don't know what they were doing then, but, um, you know, it was just a matter of channeling that energy into their new focus of what it is they wanted to do with their presentation and music and so forth. But uh, that scene particularly, that was one of the first things when we were starting to cut the film. Uh, Paul Greenhouse took some of my research. He's our editor that's not here tonight, but... I had, I had gotten some of that footage. It's actually of three different films, the worship footage that you're looking at. One is from a film called Holy Ghost People, and I think 66 or something like that, um, about Pentecostalism, West Virginia area. Another one was called Joy Unspeakable, and it was a film from the early 80s, Indiana Public Television, that I tracked down. And then the last one, which is really incredible, is a film from 1972 called Marjo, and that won an Oscar for Best Doc that year. And so Sarah, the director that lives here in New York, I had her over and showed her that and asked her if it was okay after I did it. <laughs> yeah, she loved it, so that was great. You know, and I, I remember showing it to the boys, and I think it was so accurately, and I think it's, you said earlier, DNA, uh, or my friend Bill Flanagan says the DNA of rock and roll, you know, and you're nailing it too. It's the purity of the emotion and the passion that they put into their music, and that's probably where it evolved from. So when we showed it to the boys the first time, it made, uh, I think Caleb said something to me like, um, 
you know, uh, man, I just don't know about that. It just makes my skin crawl, and I don't want you to change a thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Powerful. Yeah. Uh, there was just one other scene I wanted to discuss with you before we open the floor. Um, and that is the scene, I, you know, it's sort of like in a corridor and, you know, some filming is going on. And I, I guess it was, I think it was Caleb was being filmed and just it was saying, like, turn off the camera. Well, yeah, when Nathan's somehow uh, yelling and filming at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, exactly. And, uh, you know, we made you and yeah, all this. Yeah, that was Nathan filming him. Nathan filmed a lot of the footage that's in the movie. He, uh, once we told him that we liked his footage, that was a... Uh, blessing and a curse because then he was turning in hundreds of hours of footage you know but uh no it was great because he you know no we he turned that in and he said man there's something on there dude i'm telling you i don't know if you should show it to caleb or not don't show anybody you can show casey or whatever and we watched it and we're like oh my gosh you know so we cut it and put it together with something and showed them and that's probably the most nervous i've ever been in my life. you want to you know sit down with caleb and show him that for the first time that's not fun yeah, it's one so of So I give Caleb a lot of credit for being absolutely. man enough to show you that he's goes through that with his brother, you know, and it's yeah, cool. it was, uh, you know, it's it just one of the one of the most uh, sort of emotional moments uh, of many in the movie. Well, let's uh, let's see. I'm sure we have some comments and some questions. And just raise your hand. We'll come to you with the microphone right here in the center. Hi, uh, I'm a huge fan of Kings of Leon, and um, I want to. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to um, ask you, you made two comments. Uh, one, you said that they don't do anything conventional or something in that long, along those lines. The second thing you said is there was an arc in their history and they went from conservative to a little out there. So I'd like to ask you your perception because in the New York Times, I think about within the last year, just before their new album came out, uh, I think the band or Caleb uh, stated that he thought he was, and I'm using my own words, selling out or going a little bit more conventional or mainstream. So can you speak to that juxtaposition and if that was a conscious choice or if it was just a natural evolution and ever, they ever got to go back to their original edgy stuff? <laughs> yeah, that's like everybody asked that question, obviously. I mean... I've never speak for them musically because that's their world. You know, the music that they create, obviously, they're the guys that do that. But, you know, wa having watched them, I mean, I think some of that early stuff, the reason it's so edgy is they're coming out of this world that we're talking about, all of a sudden have their chance to get out there and kick and kick hard. And there's drugs and girls and people are reacting and I, your brain explodes, you know. And so, I mean, those first, the EPs and the energy on that thing is wild, I think, you know, and then course youth and young manhood has that as well and then if you notice i think you know you go into aha shake and they're sort of hitting stride and uh i think that's when they really got comfortable and saying oh we're, we're good at this you know we can really do this so yeah i think everybody goes through changes in life and different perceptions and may come back to it so i would never want to say i think they're going to come back to the church or make christian music one day i don't really think they perceive things that way i think they just do what they want, you know? But I think they're like all of us that go through, uh, you change as you grow up, I think. I think that struggle of, um, you know, are we selling out or, you know, are we abandoning something is, is, uh, is something that all bands in particular just seem to go through yeah. who, who want to reach an audience. You know, I think that, you know, once you're not just speaking 
to yourselves in a way and, and to the, the people closest to you, you know, there's, there's, there is something that's lost, perhaps. But also, you know, you're communicating with a lot more people. But it's a struggle. Yeah, yeah no, that's a good way. You're communicating with a lot more people. And it's funny, the one question I get after, at, repeatedly at these screenings is like, why does Caleb hate you somebody so much, you know? And he doesn't hate the song. I mean, only Glee hates the song, you know? <laughs> um, anyone? Right here in the front row. Uh, what inspired you to make this film, and how did you find yourself first acquainted with the band? Um, I was living in Nashville 10 years ago. This month, as a matter of fact, I was down there. Uh, I was working in music publishing for uh, Ken Levitan, who's their longtime manager now, and I was working at his startup publishing company. So one of my jobs was to go find young, talented artists and writers and not in country or not, you know, Fine rock, fine R&B, stuff that was different down there. And so their attorney, now longtime attorney, Kent Marcus, he lived about three houses down from me, uh, right behind Music Row, basically, there in Nashville. And so they kept saying, ah, oh, come down and hear... My friend called them the Wonder Twins. My friend that's from California, he called Nathan and Caleb the Wonder Twins. I was like, who, what the... F what's he talking about, Wonder Twins, you know? But... And they're going to kill me for telling this story, I'm sure. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, but yeah, I went over to Kent's house and... Um, Kent said, oh, sing something for Steve, you know, sing something for him. And they did. And, you know, it's a moment in time I'll definitely never forget. You know, like hair stood up on my neck and I, I felt it just felt like time stood still. And it was kind of one of those really weird moments in your life where you're like, man, nothing's ever going to be the same, you know. So that was really my motivation, you know, and then getting to know them and hear them tell these stories. I didn't believe them at first. I was like, you know, some of the things that they've told me about their childhood, but getting to go meet this family for the first time. I got to go to the Reunion Park there in 2002. And that was right before the band was forming. So it was probably the last moment in time where all this hadn't started up yet, you know. And I met those people and got their trust at that point in time. And it took a long time until, you know, a couple of years ago, their Uncle Bud, if you, I don't know if you've seen the film or not, but their Uncle Bud that's featured in the end of it, he, he's a pretty scary dude, obviously. I wouldn't mess with him. And... Uh, he came up to me one day and he said, man, what are you going to do with all this? You, all you do is keep filming away out here, but what are you going to do with it? I never see you do anything with it. I said, well, we, we wanted to make a documentary about you guys and the, everything out here. And he said, uh, I, I think that'd be great. I think that would really be a great thing. And once he told me that, I felt like I was off to the races. And their Uncle Ralph, who you don't get to meet much in the film, but he provided me a lot of the family videotapes and so forth. And I haven't shown him the film yet, and last time I was at the park, I said, well, I want to show it to you, and he wants to see it, and we're going to show it to him, but he just said, Steve, I, I, I know where you stand, and if you're proud of it, I'm going to be cool with it, so that was pretty neat. Anyone else? Right here in the center. Uh, hi. Uh, do you think your own uh, religious views came into play in terms of how you, fil the filtered, um, any, how you filtered any of the footage you used or what you shot? Yeah, and uh, I think so. I think, you know, I didn't grow up Pentecostal, so I don't quite relate to that. But I can remember being in, like, Christian prep schools growing up where they're telling you, you know, if you don't believe this, you're going to burn in hell, or if you don't become a missionary, your life's going to fall apart. And, you know, I've, I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be a missionary. You know, there's nothing wrong with being a missionary, but, you know, I, I thought I was going to play professional football or something. You know, I don't know. But, you know, but yeah, I think so. Maybe some of that, 
you know, maybe some of that probably, maybe it's just why I relate to them. I understand that conflicted feeling. I don't feel that way anymore. And I don't think Caleb does either, but I think that's obviously what he was going through. Um, you know, there's their world so much more intense than what I, I ever dealt with, though, obviously. Yeah, I was going to I was just going to interject on that. I mean, they, you know, they were talking about like, you know, just this kind of ecstasy of being you know, sneaking and being able to see like Sesame Street one time, you know, or just watch TV at all or, you know, just Some, somehow their father always had Oklahoma football games on the TV <laughs> worked at that point in time, though. We've never gotten that one solved yet, but. Well, you yeah. know, I mean, that also, I mean, that whole theme of, you know, what's actually being preached and what's being practiced is, uh, you know, something that comes through pretty powerfully in the film. And just trying to negotiate that as a kid, um, it, it's very, uh, it's, a, it's a strong theme, I think, it, of the movie. Yeah, and it's, their, you know, they, their childhood was very strict and it was very different than most of any, anybody here is probably dealt with the man-made rules within Pentecostalism, you know, and so I'm sure that that weighed on them. I don't think, I don't think in fairness, though, to uh, Uncle Ivan, their dad, and, and Betty Ann, their mom, I don't think that they particularly enjoyed that side of it. I don't think that they were so, um, they, they were, they gave the boys a little room, I think, you know, I, I think they were concerned that they, they wanted to be happy kids, you know what I mean? So I think that was always on their mind. It, was, it worried them, I think, that that world was so intense. From my little bit of talking to them about that, I think it worried them that they were putting them in that position. But, you know, and they moved so much that they never really could settle in and get to know people well. If they stayed anywhere for one period of time, it was at Nacho's house, you know? They would go camp out there. But other than that, their mom has a, it's really great, she has a, they have a couple things that they've saved from over the years, and they have their dad's preaching Bible, which I love looking through it, and the youth and young manhood map is in the back of that where they got it from. It's pretty killer, but the, their mom has a notebook <laughs> full of girls where they would write their names in there for her to keep track of so then they would come into the city. So she had a notebook with girls, you know, uh, uh, Becky Louise or so-and-so Nicole, you know, and just books full of girls leaving their numbers for them. So I guess they've always dealt with that, too. I don't know. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it was about the moving around. There was that moment, I forget which, uh, you know, who said it exactly, but they were saying, you know, I just quickly learned that never to get close to anyone, yeah. you know, just... That's a, yeah. pretty, that's a pretty amazing comment that I think yeah, exactly. that Caleb makes in there. It's a really telling comment, as I guess what I was trying to say. Um, yeah, they, they, you know, uh, they don't have many... Friends, and I don't mean that's because they're not nice guys and people don't like them. I just mean I think they're getting older and getting more friends now and reaching out. But for many, many years in this first part of the development of the band, and I think they have a lot of years ahead of them, so that's why I say it that way. But they just had their crew and their family and a handful of friends, and I think it's because they just didn't, you know, they were moving. So you just you get to like, you know, Caleb or Nathan would tell me, I'd meet a guy, I'd play basketball with him, we'd be at their church for a ten day revival, and you've thought man this would be a great buddy like best friend and next thing you know you're packing the car up and you're off to the next city so it's got to be tough on a kid i'm sure yeah, absolutely anyone I... I read that you had something like 700 hours of footage to make this movie so did all of the good stuff make it into the film or is there some more that we might get to see in another yeah film? there's a lot of good stuff that didn't make the movie there's a lot of there was a lot of painful cuts that hit the floor I guess you could say so we have some really good deleted scenes that are 
a lot of them are very similar to the home movie series because they're very short and it's like a minute goes by where you're like, what the hell just happened, you know? Why does Caleb have his pants around his ankle sitting on a trash can in the middle of the studio? And you and you find out, you know, things like that. Or and they're very mischievous, and they like to pull pranks on each other. And you know, I think, you know, so we're gonna show some of that wildness, you know, for sure. Okay, we have time for two more questions. First one in the front row. You've been sort of touching on this already, but now that they've traveled that arc, how do they reconcile themselves with religion? How, how did they reconcile Re themselves yeah. with the movie yeah. itself? Well, no, with religion. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't answer that for them. I, I, you know, that'd be a question you'd probably have to get them to ask directly. But I think you hear Caleb say it in the interview that we filmed in France, where he, the woman's asking him, "Well, what do you believe?" And he's saying, "Well, I, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out." That's probably, you know, that's probably where he is. I would guess. You know. One more. Anyone want to take on the last question? <laughs> Talahina too? Yeah, exactly. Back to Talahina. I don't know. Um, I think we leave good enough alone, probably, you know? Well, I think that, I mean, if I could just, maybe I'll ask a, a final question. I mean, I think that, you know, you're kind of left in this place at the end where it seems like that struggle is going on still, you know? And not that, I mean, they're older and they, you know, seem to have, uh, you know, stabilized somewhat and they're obviously, you know, enjoying what they're doing. And uh, I think the family is, has come to terms with, with what they're up to. But you, know, you kind of get a sense that, you know, it's not a nice bow, you know, and I wonder if you could just talk about that element of, of uh, you know, since also you know them personally as well as just as a filmmaker, you know, what, what your picture of that is. Yeah, I, I think the film did help the family maybe provide some closure in a lot of ways and I think they're very proud of the film they're calling it our film Uncle Cambo and Matt's dad say our films you know this or our films that which is great but um, I think if you know I, I think they're settled in know this is what they're supposed to do but I think if maybe some of the tension that everyone senses all the time or like that you say there's not a bow on it or it's not perfect or it feels very unsettled I mean if you're around those guys in one day, you realize their whole world's no bow. It's crazy. It's a constant swirl of really epic-sized energy that's mashing up all over the place all the time. It's really confusing, you know? But I think the thing that maybe people sense a lot out of, out of this is they're very driven to be a good band. They take it very, very seriously. They work extremely hard. And I think a lot of that discontent that you may sense is that they don't feel they've accomplished what they need to yet musically. So I think that might be what everyone reads into. Well, Stephen, thank you so much, man. This is really a pleasure. And, Thanks. Uh, Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Go see the film if you haven't seen it already. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thank you again to Stephen. The film looks amazing. Uh, guys, thank you so much for this week. This is, this is it. But we still have the website, apple.com forward slash retail forward slash Tribeca. There's one event left tomorrow afternoon, and it is the future of Tribeca. The student filmmaker panel is tomorrow at 5 p.m. We'll have uh, four up-and-coming filmmakers here to screen their films and talk about them as well. It's going to be very exciting. Um, what's that? 
they're going to talk to me, Suzanne. That's it. It's going to be a fun event tomorrow. Uh, thank you again, Stephen. I can't thank you enough. And of course, guys, the Tribeca Film Festival app. Even though the festival draws to a close, you can still get plenty of information about the films that played and trailers as well. We thank you so much for coming out, not only tonight, but all week. And we hope to see you moving forward. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful Friday evening and a wonderful weekend.